0: Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Friends, Jesus Christ is either worth everything, or He is worth nothing. If He is the true Savior and Lord, the way, the truth, and the life... As he claims in scripture, then he is absolutely worth everything. And if he is not what he claims, God forbid, if he is a fraud, God forbid, then he's worth nothing. It is quite impossible for Jesus to only be worth something. He is worth everything. I'm not sure how many of you know the words <clears throat> or the, uh, the man, the radio legend known as Earl Pitts. I don't advise listening to him all the time. But when I read this letter to the church of Laodicea, Earl always starts his morning show with this phrase. You know what makes me sick? You know what makes me so angry? And then he'll go on and say something redneckish that I'll not repeat here this morning. But when I read this letter to the church in Laodicea, I, I read... And I feel like I need that redneck accent when I read it because Jesus, at the end of this first vision for John in the Revelation, is addressing the stomach-churning church of Laodicea, a church that is dependent or was dependent upon itself, having lost sight of total dependence upon Christ alone, and that is a church that is deceived and a church that is useless. So let's look at this together. I'll read starting in verse 14 through the end of verse uh, 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold for me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous And repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on the on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word that is faithful and true. It is the faithful and true witness of all that has gone before us, what is still true today and will always be relevant for us moving forward until Christ returns. Father, I thank you that we have a copy of it today that we can open and read for ourselves. Father, I thank you that we have the Holy Spirit which, who speaks to us um, as we read and that we can hear that voice of correction, we can hear the words of correction and direction leading us to be zealous and repent. Father, we also can hear the sweet words from our Savior, those whom I love. And we know that is the church because Christ gave himself for the church because he loved her. God, what we do not know, teach us. What we are not yet, make us for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So just like the other letters to the churches, to the other six churches, we have the character of Christ to open up this, this letter to the church in Laodicea. And so let's look at this together. Verse 14, he says, he identifies himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Let's think about that word amen. You say it sometimes when I get it right, I hear you say it. Uh, You say it after we sing, at least somebody does, I hear it every now and then, we hear the amen, and that's good. But Jesus here identifies himself as the amen. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16 particularly, there Isaiah writes, God is literally the God of the amen, or the God of truth. When we say amen, we affirm what we're hearing. So be it is another way of thinking of that word, the amen. So the amen is an affirmation or it's a confirmation of truth. He is the amen because he is the truth. And here, particularly, it points to Jesus as the amen of God or the affirmation of God. God is true, therefore Jesus is truth. And he is suggesting that he is the assurance or the truth, of all of God's promises. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we hear Paul write to the Corinthian church, for all the promises of God find their what? Anybody know that one? Find their yes in him. All the promises of God... All the way back to Genesis three fifteen, all the promises. Actually, let's just go all the way back to Genesis one verse one. All the way back to the very beginning, all the promises of God find their maybe, nope, find their yes in Christ Jesus. That is why Paul continued. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Jesus is the truth. Of God. He is the affirmation of God. He is the yes of God. Jesus also says or identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. I don't know if you like crime shows or uh, one of my favorite is, has been Law and Order. It's been an interesting series to watch over. I mean, I guess that really started when I was a teenager because they're like season 23 now or something crazy but I love watching that because of the drama and the, you get to see the, the, the police side of things and then you get to see the courtroom side of things. And, and, and sometimes in those shows, they have a witness that will change their story on the witness stand and completely mess up the DA or the ADA while they're on trial. And when that happens, you see the frustration of the ADA all over their face and usually some kind of uh, motion is filed for a mistrial or something along those lines. But friends, that's not what Jesus is. He is the faithful and true witness, that that he is the certainty to his words and to his promises. It tells us that what Christ says is without error, with what Christ testifies about is without deception, and there is no exaggerating the story to make it sound better. In other words, he's not the fisherman who caught the fish yesterday. Right? It was really this big and it was a minnow, okay, that big, but we get to start telling the story and we take the picture in such a way that it looks like it was huge, am I right? This is the big great white whale that, uh, that that was there and they're trying to catch, right? He's this big and uh, he's not that. There is no exaggeration, there is no error, there is no deception. That everything Jesus has said and is saying at this point is complete, trustworthy, and truthful. John wrote in Revelation chapter one, verse five, that, that this was from Jesus Christ, this revelation, the faithful witness. Meaning, when you get up there someday and he advocates for you, he's not gonna change the story. Everything he says and everything he has said is absolutely true. Every word that he spoke, has spoken is true. And so he offers Laodicea counsel in verse 18. We'll look at there in just a moment. So you know his counsel won't turn you in the wrong direction. When Jesus corrects you, he's correcting you for a reason. He's not wrong. When the Word of God corrects you and you find, whoop, that's a sin, oh, God won't care this time. No, that's wrong. The Word of God is correcting you because you are wrong. Jesus said himself that he was the way, the truth, and the life. Then he also says that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, again, this is where Jehovah's Witness and Mormons uh, get this wrong about Jesus because they believe that Jesus was created by God. And they would use this as, as evidence. Uh, they would say there was a time when Jesus was not. Uh, but we would not argue that. We would say Jesus is was, is, and will always be, based on John 1:1. In the beginning was the word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But here this text says that, uh, that he is the beginning of God's creation. John 1:3 says, "All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things begin with him, all things exist through him, Everything has their place and their end in him. And before Abraham was. He was, not only was he there in creation and before creation, but when he was raised from the dead, then he becomes the firstborn from the dead, showing that now he alone has inaugurated and is sovereign over the new creation that will come, as Revelation tells us. All of this points, all of his character points to two things about the one who is addressing the church at Laodicea and has addressed the other six churches and addresses us today. One is this, you can trust what he says. We can trust what he says. When Jesus calls us to go make disciples to the ends of the earth, we trust that he's calling us to do the will of God. When he calls us to forgive our brother or our sister in Christ, we can trust that that is for our good and for his glory. We can trust what he says. Second, we can trust what he starts. We can trust what he starts. We didn't start this church. I know we say it started in 1983. That's a good thought. But really, the church started in Acts chapter two. If you go back and read, that's the birth of the church. We are still a part of that church. And we can trust what God started that day, what Christ Jesus started that day as the Holy Spirit came, that he is going to finish that. Paul wrote it himself in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus doesn't leave things undone. He doesn't leave things unfinished. We are a part of that plan and we get to gloriously uh, go about that plan and, and work and serve for his glory and our good until he calls us home. Now, if we're looking at the big picture, chapters two and three, Laodicea is the fifth church to receive a rebuke from the Lord. There are two who do not receive a rebuke, only encouragement. They're small, uh, but they're uh, courageous. That one is uh, 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 Smyrna, and I believe Philadelphia is the other one that doesn't receive a rebuke, but all the others do. But there's a difference in those five that receive the rebuke, there's a difference between Laodicea, Sardis, and the other three. The other three all receive a compliment first, but Laodicea and Sardis receive no compliment. Jesus gets right to, the punt, right, right to the point. And friends, when we read this, we have to see it that he, he's not pulling punches here, right? He loves his church. Jesus is zealous for the church. He loves it with a passion. He gave his life for it. He was raised from the dead for it. He sent the Holy Spirit for it. He's done everything he can for us as a church. And so he loves the church with a great passion. So he's not holding back. He's just going right in. There is no compliment, only this truth. It's the complaint that we see in verses 5 through 17. I know your works, and you think there's a compliment coming like all the others? Uh, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Friends, the complaint is, church in Laodicea, you are deceived. You are deceived. Verse 15 is pretty clear. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold uh, cold nor hot. Would that you would either be one or the other. Now, this again, as a reminder, is the word from the faithful and true witness. Keep that in mind that he knows what you're doing. Church, he knows what we're doing. What happens behind the scenes? What's happening in front of the scene? He knows exactly what's going on. He is fully aware of the goings on in Laodicea. He knows that they're neither cold nor hot. Would you that you were either cold or hot? Now, typically, I've heard this, and I even taught it myself one at, this, at one time. Meaning that if you're cold to Jesus, you're in opposition to Him, and if you're hot for Jesus, then you're on fire for Jesus. And then we'd go on and make the application, quit riding the fence, get out of the mushy middle. But that's not what I think and believe anymore that Jesus is pointing to here again. Why? Because the context of Laodicea gives us a little, a little deeper meaning. There's two cities around Laodicea. The first one is Hierapolis. It's about six miles away, give or take a few miles. Uh, And it was famous for hot springs. Think Hot Springs, Arkansas, right? If you've ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas, you know back in the day there was a time where people went to hot springs for medicinal reasons. They went to dip in the hot water, to take the hot mud bath or all the things because they thought there was some healing power to it. Same thing in Hierapolis. The waters were as hot as 95 degrees. Like, we know what that's like in the summertime around here, don't we, to go to the the ocean? I thought this was supposed to be refreshing. Oh, no, no, this is healing water, it's so hot, right? But then Colossae was not too far away either. And Colossae was known for cold, pure spring water that was quite refreshing to the taste. So on one side, you've got hot water, hot springs that were believed to have some kind of healing to them. And then on the other side, you've got cold, refreshing water. Who doesn't enjoy that on a hot summer day to take a swig of cold water? Man, It just helps everything. It brings down your body temperature, all the things with it. It's refreshing, quenches the thirst. And smack dab in the middle is Laodicea. And Laodicea historically is known to not have much water or at least a water source of their own. So they had to bring the water in. Well, over that distance, the cold water and the hot water would mix and essentially create this lukewarm water that was not very good to drink. Consider when you go to a third world country today, you're not going to drink the water. You're going to make sure that you have bottled water with you. Same kind of issue here. The lukewarmness of the water, the mineral content of the water from the hot springs, it's just disgusting to drink. It's attested to outside of Scripture in historical documents that that's the way it was. And so, jesus what I think Jesus is getting here, getting to, Is this, I wish you were either a fresh, life giving drink of cold water or a healing hot mineral bath. But you're neither one. You're not providing the healing for the spiritually sick nor the refreshment for the spiritually thirsty. Your testimony, in other words, stinks. You're neither. And he says, I will not tolerate you anymore, or at least much longer. You are a poor representation of the life changing power of the gospel. You are a poor representation of the refreshment and healing it brings to the heart of the new believer. That hurts. He also, not only does he know what's going on, he knows who we think we are. And this points to the Laodicean sin of self-reliance. You see how he's positioned himself here? That he is the true Faithful witness, the Amen of God, the dependable, the one we can depend on. And yet, Laodicea is not depending on him. Laodicea is depending on themselves. Instead of being a glorious, refreshing witness of the gospel, here's their witness I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. It speaks nothing of God's goodness, nothing of God's grace, nor his provision. Their testimony is in worldly junk, what Paul would call dung. Rather than being poor in spirit as Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, this church is quite the opposite. She's impressed with herself. First, they say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. The church believed it had such adequate resources that it could do nothing, excuse me, that it could do anything it wanted and they could do without the Lord's help. The church was proud of its banks. The church was proud of its affluence. That's Laodicea. It was in a very affluent city, rich in every way. I've got wealth and I need nothing else. It's the exact opposite of the little church known as Smyrna. I believe that's in chapter two. Smyrna was a little church and knew of its material poverty. They didn't have much, yet Christ calls them rich. Go back to Revelation chapter two. Look at verse nine. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. What's in parentheses in your Bible? Do you see it? But you are what? Rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. How is that that they're in poverty, but you're rich? How is that possible? It's because they're depending on the richness of God's grace and mercy. That's how. And so to say that I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, is to completely disregard the gifting and the mercies of God. Second, they say, they are without clothing, or they are clothed, I should say, not without clothing, but they are clothed. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing, here's what Jesus says, that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now Jesus will encourage them or direct them, correct them to buy white garments, thinking that they're clothed in righteousness, and yet Jesus says, You're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and negative. The imagery here is that Laodicea, again, context helps us understand this, history helps us understand this, is known for its black wool industry. Shiny, it was was desired, it was very desirable all over. So what does Jesus see? Not the fine linens that they were known for, not the extravagant attire that they were known for, but what Jesus sees, it's not that they were dressed in his righteousness, but rather that they were dressed in their sin, and it might as well have been a black. They see; He sees that they are wretched, pitiful, and without clothing. Third, they also think they have plenty of spiritual insight. Instead, Jesus says, you are blind. Laodicea was also known for its eye salve. It had some medical, uh, uh, it was kind of quite the medical center. You know, we might say Houston, the medical center in Houston where MD Anderson and and, uh, I think it's St. Luke's is down there. There's some really uh, wonderful hospital and and, uh, health clinics there in downtown Houston. It's known for its medical prowess. We have some of those. Um, We understand that. But the medical advancements of that day, the eye salve that they were known for, the mud They were known for. It could not heal the spiritual blindness of the church, and it still can't today either. What might be worst of all in this correction that Jesus offers to Laodicea is that Jesus says, "You guys think all of this about yourself, and you don't even realize that it's the exact opposite of what you think. You don't even know." He says that in verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing the truth. This church has deceived itself about its spiritual condition. Self-reliance is gonna do that to you. It's gonna bring you to a point where you are blinded to the truth. It's gonna bring you to a point where you're impoverished from the word and the nourishment of God. It's going to bring you to a point where you're like the emperor with no clothes, strutting your stuff, all the while you're wearing the clothing of your sinfulness and wretchedness. Danny Aiken said it this way, indifference will eventually lead to ignorance concerning where we are spiritually. We may say one thing when the truth is altogether something different. You hear it. The church said, we are rich, we are wealthy, we need nothing. Christ said, you are wretched, pitiful, blind, and naked. So I ask you this morning, who is right? Who is right? There is one who is telling the truth, and there is one who is not. It's either the church, or it's the faithful and true amen of God, (laughs) Which one's telling the truth? Of course, Jesus is telling the truth. Let, let me tell you this. Let me let, just do a, a, an exam, examination of our own nation and the churches in our nation. If money and material possession made that much of a difference, then why is our nation, arguably the wealthiest nation of all time, also the nation with the most psychologists and most psychiatrists and psychotherapists in the world. Doesn't it seem backwards? Wouldn't it stand to reason that if Americans were to be happy, happy, happy all the time, all the live long days, and yet we are the nation that needs the most help with our heart and with our mind? Why? Because the problem is so much deeper than material possessions and self-reliance. We don't need more money, friends. We need more Jesus. God is trying to bring you to a place where you understand that your sin separates you from him. But the death of Jesus has paid for that sin. And that if you would trust in Jesus Christ, then you would be reconciled to God then you go and tell others about him because he is our testimony. When we we testify about Jesus, the Jesus of scripture, not the warm fuzzy Jesus that we all like to think about, but the Jesus of the text, the Jesus that gave his life, when we testify about his grace and his mercy and his life-giving power, our testimony is not wrong. Why? Because we are testifying about the truth. We have to tell people about him. He is our testimony, but Laodicea was boasting in everything else but Jesus, and so Jesus moved on to give the wise counsel to the church, to the counsel, the counsel to the true witness, or the counsel of the true witness. Here it is. It's simple. Rely on Jesus. That's all it is, is rely on Jesus. The good news is that for Laodicea, all is not lost, for in there is always hope in Jesus Christ. He cares for his church. He loves his church, and he says so in verse 19. He says this, For those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's hard to hear Jesus say that he loves his church after he just told them he's about to puke them out of his mouth. But he's doing that, he's saying that because he loves us. And so he counsels three things to buy from him. Now, we need to remember The buying thing here is a metaphor. It's an image, it's a symbol to help us understand what he's getting at. It does not mean that these spiritual benefits may be earned or purchased. I'm pretty sure Martin Luther made sure that we understood that when he nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Christ Jesus wants you to know that these things, by his grace, these things are freely offered. Why? Because he paid for them. What Jesus is calling Laodicea to, and us today as well, is to rely on him. We have to keep trusting in him. So he says, buy, from go- buy gold from me, refine by fire, so that you may be rich. He's not talking about calling up Texas precious metals and ordering some gold for your bank account. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about literal gold. But when we look through scripture and we see that our God is a refining fire, he's talking about purity. He's talking about going through that fire where God scoops out the dross, scoops out the impurities of our life. It is a call to be refined. And that gold that is purchased from Christ, that he purchased for us, it is pure. Friends, we have to remember, we are not pure. And we go through that refining process as we trust him. Each and every day, he finds something else that needs to be removed, And so that refined gold is a picture of walking with Christ as he purifies your life by removing sin. Jesus does that for you. Then he says, buy white clothes for me. Again, a play on the black wool linen industry of Laodicea. But what we understand in scripture is that the imagery of white clothing is not stained by sin, which the fancy black garments represented. Buy for me clothing that is not stained by sin. White clothes symbolize the righteousness of Christ. Think back even to the Garden of Eden. There was nakedness in the garden with Adam and Eve. They didn't know they were until they ate from the tree. And then what did they do after they realized what had happened? They hid. Why? Because they were naked. They were ashamed. Then what did they do? They made clothes. And before the Laodicean church is walking about spiritually naked. They're unaware of their humiliation. They don't know what's happening. Buy white clothes from me. Take the righteousness of Christ and clothe yourself. Paul tells the church to put on Christ. Third, he says, here's some salve. To anoint your eyes. Why? So you can see. There was a physical miracle. Jesus used mud and he spit into it. You remember that story? I always wanted to get kids to like literally make mud and spit into it, but I don't think that would be such a good idea now that I have children. But it recalls that miracle where he applied the salve to the man's eyes and he was healed of his blindness. He'd been blind from birth. In John chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus says to the religious leaders, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so salve to anoint your eyes, it is there so that we see the truth and we're not blinded by our self-reliance. Friends, Jesus loves the church. He says so in verse 19, and the word there for love is not agape, it's a phileo love. It's a tender affection for the church the most undeserving church listed, the church that receives no compliment from Jesus receives this love. That's how much he loves the church because he disciplines those he loves. So he gives us this final command to Laodicea. This is the challenge for the church. He says, be zealous and repent. The church of Laodicea has to repent and turn away from its self-sufficiency. It is a decisive act that must take place and It is to be an ongoing attitude in the church, an attitude of repentance. The Lord looks to those with a broken and contrite heart, David said. Dear friend, that person, the Lord will not turn away. So we come to him with a broken and contrite heart to be zealous and not repent. Now, zealousness uh, can, can, can be fanaticism if it's disconnected from our mind. If we just let our passion take over... We'll see people rolling down the aisles doing cartwheels, hooping and hollering, doing all kinds of weird stuff that is not biblical. But zealousness always works heart and mind together for we are to love God with both, with all that we are. We must have a broken and contrite heart and then we turn back to the Lord. We turn away from self-reliance and say, yes, I will trust in the true word. I will trust And the the witness, the true witness, I will trust in the amen of God. And then he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we used to hear this verse. Anytime we had a revival growing up in First Baptist Church at George West, that evangelist would usually preach Revelation 3.20, at least one of those sermons. But this actually has little to do with evangelism. While it is true, right, he is knocking on the door of the lost, of the heart of the, of the lost, that's not where he's knocking, is it? Where is he knocking? Who's the church? What's the letter written to? Laodicea. He's knocking on the door of the church. Let me in. It's an insistent, repeated pounding on the door. Friends, it's noted in history, again, from Laodicea, that they were forced to house Roman soldiers to take up residence in their homes. If they came knocking on the door, they had to let them in. But most of the time, they wouldn't knock on the door. They would just come right in. They'd have to give up their beds. They'd have to feed those soldiers. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is sovereign over the whole thing. But he stands and knocks. He's not going to force himself upon you. But he stands at the door of the church, and he knocks. He stands at the door of each one of our hearts. He waits to be invited in, and then he provides the meal. Why? Because he's the bread of life. He's the bread of life. He's also the living water. Revelation 22:17 says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life, let him come. This is all that Jesus is for us. He is sovereign, He is supreme, His will is absolutely over everything. and what He wills will come to pass. but there's this <clears throat> excuse me, there's this glorious tension between divine sovereignty and our responsibility as human beings. And so Jesus calls them to be zealous and repent. And if they do that, they will know His presence. And the same is true for us today. He will be with us as the church, not outside the church. Knocking on the door of our heart, wanting to come in. And for Laodicea, it means that they would rely on him, not their own resources. What a beautiful picture of God's grace and mercy to only rely on his resources. So if you're listening and you've heard what God is saying, then you know the final word is to him who overcomes. Don't quit, don't surrender to the world. Don't give in, but keep on trusting. Keep on relying on Christ. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website, thecoastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.